I spent a summer, maybe 30 years ago now, reading everything that I could get my hands on by Robert Louis Stevenson, his essays, his letters, his stories, his novellas. At one point in the haunting Gothic novella, which by far was my favorite, and at one point in the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Henry Jekyll actually quotes from this week's epistle reading. The first time Jekyll takes the potion and finds himself becoming Hyde, he says, I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold as a slave to sin. In Romans 7, St. Paul talks about two selves, in a sense, warring within, an inner conflict between good and evil. And in verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. That's the passage that Jekyll quotes. Physician Henry Hyde has come up with a potion that will allow the good in him and the evil in him to become two distinct selves, independent of and unrestrained by the other. This stems from Jekyll's belief that the core problem with the human condition is that neither of these selves lets the other fully enjoy life. The evil self can't get beyond the good of the good self, and the good self can't get over the temptation of the evil self. So he drinks this potion and becomes two distinct persons. And he finds, first of all, that the evil part of him is much eviler than he imagined, tenfold more. And yes, I know eviler does not sound like a word, but it is. It's even valid in Scrabble for nine points. But please don't Google it now, which I know some of you are already reaching for your phone. Finally, after Hyde commits a gruesome murder, Jekyll says, no more. And three months of intense struggle restrains him until he finds that not only was Hyde, the evil inside him, eviler than he had imagined, but also far more powerful than he ever believed. And in one horrible moment, the story turns. Up till this point, the good Dr. Jekyll anchors the story, and he has to take the potion to become Hyde. But one day, while sitting on a park bench, he spontaneously becomes Hyde, and now he has to take the potion to become Jekyll. Now Hyde's in control, and now he takes the potion to become Jekyll, only to escape the police, who are now closing in on him, you discover at the end of the story that you're actually reading Henry Jekyll's last will and testament. And he says, this is the last time I will be Dr. Henry Jekyll because I've run out of the potion. I need to become him. I become Hyde whenever the effects of the potion wear off and I can no longer find the right ingredients. And by the way, I, I know this story is like 136 years old, but I'm not going to spoil it for you. You should read it. There is a tragic and bone-chilling turn with the ingredients, one that you never saw coming. But 
I'm not going to tell you what that is. And as the story ends, he's become Hyde for what he knows will be the last time, knowing he can no longer escape the police as Jekyll. So rather than being caught and exposed, he takes his life. Stevenson loved creating archetypes to force comparisons. And the point of these archetypes is to get the reader, you and me, to look at ourselves and ask, are, are we that bad? Is the evil in us that evil, that powerful? And since Romans 7 inspires the story, another question ought to follow that. Is this a biblical view of human nature? And the answer we get in the passage is that Stephen is profoundly right. Stevenson is profoundly right in his pessimistic view of human nature, but stops reading just a few verses short. He accurately diagnoses the problem, but he misses the solution. And so he leaves the readers bereft of hope. And don't get me wrong, it's a good kind of bereft. It's a great story. So here's where I think Stevenson was right. First, the Bible affirms that there is, in fact, an evil self in every one of us. This isn't to say that we're as evil as we could be, but there's a capacity for evil that's as surprising and if truly unfettered in, uh, and inflamed as awful as Stevenson describes. And it touches every single part of us. That's what total depravity means. Every part of us is touched by that. The passage actually bears witness to it and it's troubled people for years because there's a common paradigm for seeing good and evil, that's kind of more of a bell curve. On the one side, there's a small group of literal saints, so good, so virtuous, and so spiritual, they have hospitals and schools and feasts named after them. That's a small number of people. On the opposite side, you've got a small number of totalitarian dictators, genocidal maniacs, serial killers, and three-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> The rest of us, though, that big group in the middle, are basically pretty good people. But Paul rejects that paradigm. Because what is he? He's a, a literal uppercase S saint. And this is what he says, beginning at verse 14. I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin, for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Very few people ever amen that passage but I think most of us know it's true. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul describes himself to his protege as being the chief of all sinners. He himself, he saw himself as a potentially weaker and more sinful than anyone around him. This is actually a spiritually healthy and biblically accurate way for us to see ourselves too. This isn't self-hate, rather it's biblical self-awareness. And it ought to make us humble and kind and gentle and forgiving because it, it dismisses all of this self-ability uh, and I can't think of any other words that 
come after self, but you know what I'm trying to say. C.S. Lewis once said in a radio address, ask Adolf Hitler if he was a bad man, and he'd say no. Ask Abraham Lincoln if he was a bad man, and he'd say to a great degree. Paul destroys basically pretty good paradigm. He saw himself filled with sin and desperately evil. And there's a reason. Let me illustrate. I am still embarrassed to admit this 45 years after the fact. But I once looked at and bought a used car entirely at night. <laughs> Never do this. It was a 1970 Fiat Sport Spider. It was a total impulse buy, but I had to have it before someone else got it because the guy could only see me at night, and he said a lot of other people were interested in this car. <laughs> and it looked great in the dark. But the brighter it got the next day, the worse that stupid car looked. <laughs> Turns out it was an absolutely vomitous shade of green. <clears throat> it had had some really, really sloppy body work done. In fact, it was approximately 75% Bondo. <laughs> every tire, including the spare, none of which matched, by the way. Every tire, including the spare, was dry rotted, and the interior was a moldering mess. Oh, and the convertible top leaked like a sieve. And, uh, that's generous because I think actually a sieve may have leaked less than that. Parenthetically, mechanically, it was also a genuine lemon, and that's when I learned that the letters in fiat stand for fix it again tomorrow. Though <laughs> so that's not entirely my point here. That's a little like us, right? I think the more direct and bright the light, the more flaws we see. In fact, that's the mark of a spiritually mature person. The more you understand your heart and see the things, see things as God sees them, the more you see the evil lurking inside, that's what Paul is describing. What, after all, is sanctification? And we've been talking about this, we've talked about it several times over the last few weeks. Is it an awareness of how good we're becoming? Or is it a growing sense of the darkness of our own heart so that we constantly turn to and depend on Jesus? If we're becoming mature in Christ, we know it's the latter. So Robert Louis Stevenson was right. Even the best Henry Jekyll, even in the best Henry Jekyll, there's an Edward Hyde. Another way Stevenson aligns with scripture is this. The wicked self is hidden, even to us. Why the name Edward Hyde? Because the name is a play on the ancient root of both the words hideous and hidden. It's the hideousness of the heart that you must hide, not just from the world, but from yourself. One of the reasons the evil in you has the sway it does is because you can't always see it. That is the problem. It's a little like our own bad breath. We can't smell it, but our wife or a friend who cares enough to tell us about it sure as heck can. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful. 
who can know it? This is why we must be in a Hesed community, a community of steadfast love and strong identity that helps us see that underneath the veneer lies coveting and fear and desire for self-glory, ego, pride, anger, and unforgiveness that, that lovingly helps reveal our enormous capacity for self-pity, self-pride, self-centeredness, and self-deception that can bring all those things out of the darkness and into the light, in love. Another thing Robert Louis Stevenson got right is that we can't win this battle against evil with willpower alone. In the book, after Hyde commits a horrible murder, after he becomes Jekyll again and, and realizes what he's done, he says, that's it. And for three months, he does incredible good. Here's how he describes it. I resolved from that moment in my future conduct to redeem the past. And I can say with, honest, with honesty that my resolve was fruitful. You know how earnestly in the last months of the last year I labored to relieve suffering. You know that how much I had done for others. He drained his family fortune. He emptied his own pockets. He opened his home. He was as good and virtuous and generous as he could be. And then one day, as he was sitting on the bench in Regent's Park, suddenly he looked down and saw that his gnarled hands were back, and he realized in horror that he'd become Hyde again. Trying harder to be good not only hadn't beat Hyde, but actually made him stronger. This is one of the themes of Romans 7. Paul is consistently saying the law of God is good, but I can't do it. But he also says that as good as the law of God is, it actually strengthens the inner evil. My evil is such that when I say no, it's not weakened. It's actually strengthened. Before this passage in chapter 7, verse 5, he says, my sinful passions were aroused by the law. And in verse 21, he says, I find it to be that when I determine to do right, evil lies close at hand. When I most want to do good, when I try the hardest to obey the law, evil is closest to me. My doctor, because of my blood pressure, has me doing intermittent fasting. So two days a week, I try not to eat anything during the day. And you know what the only thing I can think about all day is? <laughs> Food. It's not because I'm particularly hungry. It's because I've been told I can't eat. At least I think that's why it is. For those of us who have, it's, it's not just um, Robert Louis Stevenson, and it's not just Paul. Common sense tells us this. For those of us who have reared children, what is the fastest way to get them to do something? Prohibit it. Um, as grandchildren, the fastest way to get a kiss from a grandchild is to say, don't kiss me. You're guaranteed to get one. There's just something about the wiring of the human heart that if you really want to get someone to do something, simply tell them that they shouldn't. 
We have a serious and endemic problem and moral willpower and effort and sanctions and trying harder by themselves, those are all good things, but by themselves cannot fix it. In fact, the harder you try, the closer evil is at hand. There's an amazingly insightful spot in the book that in, in the book that day on the bench in Regent's Park, just before Jekyll discovers he's, he no longer has dominion over Hyde, he writes, on a fine, clear January day, I sat in the sun in Regent's Park and I reflected and smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my acts of goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And at that very moment, at the moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea, a dreadful shuddering. I looked down, and I was once more Edward Hyde. When Jekyll tried incredibly hard to be incredibly righteous, to rescue himself through his own moral effort, he found out that instead of destroying Hyde, he was becoming Hyde. I mean, we can become Hyde through self-righteousness just as easily as we can become Hyde through unrighteousness. So what can we do? I mean, Robert Louis Stevenson doesn't give an answer, and unfortunately, this is where the story ends. Dread and despair, so bereft of hope that the only option is death by suicide. But he should have read just a little farther. Because there is something that can be done. There's a whole different set of terms with which that battle can be fought. And St. Paul addresses this beginning in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying two things here that we cannot miss. First, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? The first step in fighting this battle against sin is not fighting harder, but admitting that we are actually powerless to win it alone. Turning to Jesus at his invitation, because he is gentle and lowly of heart, and we will find rest for our souls. Paul doesn't say, I will rescue me, or even the lazy Christian thing, I've already been rescued, and now I just have to name it and claim it. Paul knows he has been rescued. We talked about this last week in three tenses. He has been rescued from sin. He is being rescued from sin, and he will yet be rescued from sin. But he's not in the clear yet. Until the day of the final restoration, he will need rescue. So he rejects the things he ought to he thought would rescue him and, he, and the ways in which he was trying to rescue himself. This is one of the reasons we come to confession every week. To simply say, I am helpless to rescue myself. I need, I need grace every hour, every minute, every second of every day. A lot of what Robert Louis Stevenson wrote in Jekyll and Hyde and what Paul writes in Romans 7 can feel depressing and discouraging. And it is, if you stop reading at verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? But verse 25, 
gives us ground for hope. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord because the outcome of the battle against sin is certain. Think back to chapter 5, which we read just a couple of weeks ago, and I talked about again last week, the triumph of God's grace in Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there it is, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's exactly the place we've come to again at the end of chapter 7. And the point is the same. Victory is ours. The triumph of grace is assured regardless of how badly we think we're doing now or our despair at the intensity of the struggle. It's the very knowledge of that final victory that gives us hope for the fight. But whatever the details of those very human battles, this holds true for those of us engaged in warfare against our own sin. We ourselves, in community with one another, must continue in the fight to work out our own salvation, but never on our own. Apart from Jesus, we cannot prevail, but united with him, not only can we prevail, we will prevail. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, there's hope. I think if you've known me at all for any length of time, you know I love that word hope. It's, it's the word we, hand, we heard at the, uh, that in that provocative phrase at the end of this morning's Old Testament reading in Zechariah, verse 12, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. What, or most, more precisely, who is their stronghold? These prisoners and these slaves in exile, it is God himself. Return to me, O prisoners of hope. You're still in exile. You are still in prison, but now you are prisoners of hope. Most of the time when we express hope, we're actually expressing some, some kind of uncertainty, like, gee, I really hope Steve doesn't preach too long today. And I, for this, I can only paraphrase Dante, abandon all hope, ye who entered here because I'm just getting warmed up, and I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uncertainty is not the distinctive biblical meaning of hope. Biblical hope not only desires something, it's confident in it. There's moral certainty that the thing that's been promised will be done. It's, it's moral because it's rooted in the commitment of the will, and the will of a person is the seat of morality. That is, we can only speak of moral right and wrong in relationship, not to what someone says, but what someone does. In the acts of their will. Biblical hope isn't just a desire for something, it's also confident expectation. Biblical hope has moral certainty because it's based on the will of God expressed in his promises and proven over and over and over again. We still battle. We are still, in some ways, prisoners, but we are no longer slaves to sin. We have rather been made, in a way, in Zechariah's words, prisoners of hope. And hope, we're told in Romans 5, 4, does not disappoint. 
because God has done what he promised. And here's the thing he promised. That summary, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, is precisely what the therefore that begins Roman 8 is there for. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Think about those three words, now, no condemnation. Now, showing that a new era of redemptive history has now been inaugurated in Jesus Christ for those who are now in right standing before God because they are united with him in faith. Now. That's the whole argument Paul makes in chapters 3, 4, and 5. And no condemnation, underscoring the stunning implications of the gospel first introduced way back in chapter 1. There is no condemnation. Let me say that again. No condemnation. Ever. For God's own. Because God has condemned not us, but sin in the flesh by sending his own son to pay the penalty for sin through his death on the cross. The very thing we will celebrate around this table today. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I feel like Stevenson just should have kept reading. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>